First Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 through 16. Over the next six weeks, I want us to think through some of the elements of our life as a church. We have new members. We have uh, folks that have been coming for a while that haven't joined yet. We have folks that have only been recently coming. And so in light of all of that, I want us to study together some of the matters of ministry philosophy of our church so that those of us who have been here for years can be reminded. Those of us that are newer can hear, and those that are still making a decision about this local assembly can assess uh, what it is we uh, kind of do as a church, what we find biblically to be important. And these are not things that only we find. These are the matters that have been important for the church for um, a couple of thousand years. And uh, so uh, we'll be talking about those matters in the coming weeks. Um, uh, One of the reformers, John Calvin, said that a church must be a church of the word, of sacraments or ordinances, and a church that disciplines. And by that, it is uh, the whole idea of discipleship. And so we want to uh, be about those things, not because Calvin said them, but because he was able to reduce those uh, into those three categories that we will address in the coming weeks. So our scripture reading and sermon this morning will be uh, will serve as a foundation for our series as we will explore matters like leadership, membership, uh, giving, and, and so on in the coming weeks. So uh, after this series, I promise we will get back into the Gospel of John. Uh, So um, if you're able to, would you please stand with me as I read our scripture uh, in the New Testament reading this morning for our text that we will study together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verses uh, verse 14 through 16, you follow along as I read aloud. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, that is Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in Glory. You may be seated. That is the reading of God's Word in the New Testament, as it has also been read in the Old Testament. Aloud for you, may it be a blessing to you. Would you join me once again in prayer? <clears throat> Lord, this morning we pray by your Spirit who inspired these words in the original autographs that you would now illuminate the eyes and hearts of believers here that we might see and understand and apply these truths in our hearts and lives. We pray that your spirit would do his convicting work as well for those who do not know you, that they might be drawn to you by your spirit, given the gift of faith and repentance so that they might believe in you this morning by the work of regeneration in their hearts. And so, Lord, we also pray for those of us who are in Christ that we too would be convicted, that we would be comforted, And Lord, that you would continue to help our faith increase uh, by the means of grace this morning in the word and and the ordinance that we will um, participate in together when that follows this time. And so Lord, we pray for your grace and mercy. Pray that you would continue to humble me and get me out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Each year, the President of the United States gives a state 
of the Union Address because Article 2, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution states that the President, quote, shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. Later this month, we will hear President Biden address Congress on the matter of the State of the Union, just as other presidents before him have done. And uh, you may have noticed the title this morning is The State of the Church. The State of the Church. I think it's important for us once a year to visit the matters of importance for the philosophy of ministry of our church, <clears throat> to be reminded of the things that we find most important, but also to speak of where we are headed as a local assembly. So it's not just simply sort of looking back um, at what God has been faithful to do for us as a local assembly, but also to um, say here are the things that we find important so to remind us of foundational matters and to help us as we think about this coming year moving forward. And so uh, the first uh, message in this mini-series is that we would reflect upon and evaluate our local assembly in light of God's instruction in the Scriptures. So that's what you see our main idea is this morning. From time to time, we need to reflect upon and evaluate our local assembly in light of God's instruction in the Scriptures. So I want us to see this morning three features of the local assembly which we as a local assembly need to investigate and emulate. Three features of the local assembly from our passage this morning which as a local assembly we need to investigate and emulate. The first is this, the conduct of the local assembly. Now, uh, this is not a message intended to uh, bring some sort of a, 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 a grievance that I have against our local assembly here, or uh, we as elders have, but simply as a reminder, a grounding, a foundation uh, that we need to look at together and be reminded. So the conduct of the local assembly one of the things we notice here is that Timothy was in need of instruction and encouragement from Paul. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know. I mean, this is kind of the, the setup here. Now, Paul had hoped to be with Timothy soon, and perhaps he would have shared these things with him in person. But in case he was delayed, he wanted to address these matters. Why? Because Timothy has been placed in Ephesus to be a church planting pastor, as it were, to establish a church in Ephesus uh, or, or to go to the established church, which Paul established in Ephesus, and to be sort of the, the next guy in line to help um, build up that church with leadership and with the instruction of uh, how to manage and how to properly uh, worship and, and do all the things that the church ought to do. And so this is Paul's first letter that we know of, of encouragement to Timothy because he is away from him. And as any pastor who has been sent to a church and has been sent to do the things that Timothy has been sent to do, um, he wants uh, and, and needs encouragement. And as he would want, he would want Paul there with him personally. The need of encouragement is huge for pastors. I say this not as one who has not received this in, uh, kind of encouragement. I, I certainly have. I'm so thankful for that. I am encouraged by you 
As I would also say, my other brother pastors are also encouraged. I also make it a point to be in relationships with other pastors from other local assemblies who can remind me of the important matters of the church as Paul is reminding Timothy here. And we all need Paul's in our life. We all need people who will be a few steps ahead of us, who we can look to and find encouragement. And just as we need Barnabas says, how do you say that Barnabas this is? <laughs> those who would walk alongside of us. And just as we need Timothys, those who would be following us. Um, I also attend conferences to encourage me in, in the ministry here at this church and for reminders that are, are brought about in those kinds of settings. And, and so just kind of the, the, the way in which we see Paul here encouraging Timothy reminds us that, and, and I'm not saying this again as someone who is lacking in encouragement, pastors need encouragement. This is part and parcel of what Paul is communicating to Timothy about the conduct of the church. Um, Timothy needed encouragement from Paul, and Paul is bringing that encouragement. And so what are those encouragements? The main category that kind of overarches everything that Paul is saying is this, the conduct of the household of God. Look at these verses again with me in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and the beginning of verse 15. I hope to come to you, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Calvin helps us understand the gravity of this statement when he says, quote, By this mode of expression, he commends the weight and dignity of the office. Because pastors may be regarded as stewards to whom God has committed the charge of governing his house. If any person has the superintendence of a large house, he labors night and day with earnest concern that nothing may go wrong through his neglect or ignorance or carelessness. If only for men this is done, how much more should it be done for God? End quote. There is built into what Paul is saying to Timothy here a weightiness, a gravity to the dispatching of the office of the pastor, of the elder. The elders of the church are responsible for not only their own conduct, but that conduct as stewards and overseers of the local assembly. What sort of things was Paul writing to Timothy about in this letter? <clears throat> so if we're just kind of looking at the overarching themes of the letter to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy, he talks about things like doctrinal integrity in chapter 1, verses 3 through 20. He then talks about the way that Timothy ought to conduct himself in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. <clears throat> and then how men and women in the church should conduct themselves in chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. He then addresses the qualifications of elders and deacons in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And then after our passage, certain teachings about how the church was to conduct itself in the arena of the home and in uh, the world, including work. And that's really what he does after he uh, talks about um, the matters that we see this morning in our passage. He goes on to say, and here's how you are to conduct yourself in the world, in, your, in the home, in, at work. Obviously, there's too much for us to unpack here, but some of these matters we will address in upcoming messages, and some we'll address in our time this morning, at least briefly. One matter we should highlight is that the conduct of the church is only as good as the conduct of her leaders. The conduct of the church 
of the local assembly is only as good as the conduct of her leaders. That is a truth to keep tucked away for when we talk about leadership later in this series. In an overarching sense, we see that the conduct of the local assembly is in line with biblical doctrine, biblical mandates for those who are in Christ, chiefly that we, all church members, pastors and otherwise, are to love God and love others as those who are transformed by the gospel, and we should live this out in such a way that we stand apart from the world around us, even as we call the world around us to believe the same gospel that has taken us from darkness to light and from death to light, death to life. Let me say that again because I want you to catch this. In an overarching sense, we see that the conduct of the local assembly is in line with biblical doctrine, biblical mandates for those who are in Christ, chiefly that we, all church members, pastors and otherwise, are to love God and to love others as those who are transformed by the gospel And we should live this out in such a way that we stand apart from the world around us, even as we call the world around us to believe the same gospel that has taken us from darkness to light and from death to life. There are more ways that we will flush this out in our series, but here at the end of our first point, we need to evaluate ourselves in considering what Paul says here. Are we, and I mean this very Uh, particularly those who are members of this local assembly, are we conducting ourselves in this way? Are we being doctrinally sound? There are ways in which I believe we are achieving this, but we need to excel still more, borrowing from Paul in 1 Thessalonians where he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, that you excel still more. We can find ourselves in line doctrinally with the Scriptures, and and then we can find ourselves kind of just stuck. We need to be growing. We need to be excelling still more and more. Um, Sometimes I've had conversations with people who say, well, I just have a simple faith. And, and I want to lovingly and gently say, don't stay in, in, in a simple faith. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as Peter encourages us. We should excel still more and more. How do we excel still more and more? Well, we have um, arenas and areas where you can grow um, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, just being very practical this morning. Of course, we want to gather as a local assembly in our gathered worship service, but there are also other ways. There's the equip hour directly after our fellowship time, directly after this worship time, that I would encourage you to be a part of, to be equipped for the work of ministry amongst the saints. We have men's and women's Bible studies. Um, These are very formal ways in which you can learn. Right now in men's Bible study on Thursday mornings, we are walking through systematic theology, and we're considering the deep things of of theology and of of the Lord. Um, There's small groups that we, again, sort of formally organize in order that we might walk faithfully with each other. Um, Those are really not another Bible study. They are there to encourage prayer and, um, yes, application of sermons and fellowship. Um, But then there's also those um, formal one-on-one relationships, how we 
um, are with one another in personal relationship. And, and uh, as the Scriptures say, iron sharpening iron, that sort of Barnabas relationship where, where we're encouraging each other to walk faithfully with the Lord and, and to learn these matters. Um, and then there's the informal ways. There's being involved in each other's lives that just in, in relationship. So uh, we want to encourage those kinds of things. We need to continue to deepen our theological understanding and live out our confession of faith. The conduct of our lives. Again, we are so thankful for the way in which we see you living your lives faithfully for God, and we want to say, excel still more in this. How can we continue to encourage each other in this? There is a need, as I just mentioned, for more discipleship relationships and that we would seek to be in each other's lives, uh, whether that's in small groups, as I mentioned, or uh, those one-on-one relationships. Are we taking those opportunities to encourage each other to walk faithfully with God? We will certainly talk about the qualification for uh, leadership in coming weeks, and, and that is important as well as we think about these matters. But having looked at the conduct of the local assembly, our next feature is the characteristic of the local assembly. So we have looked at the conduct of local assembly. Now in verse, the last part of verse 15, the characteristic of the local assembly. Look at verse 15 again with me. Um, He says um, that he's writing these things so that if he is unable to be with him, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Notice the statement, the local assembly is the assembly of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's look at these three characteristics together this morning. A characteristic of the local church is that it is the living God's church. It is the assembly of the God who is life and who is life-giving. It is the assembly of the living God. We recall, we are reminded that um, the, the God is one who is alive. And we have seen His life. We have uh, we, we know that God exists because of what is created. Psalm 19, Romans chapter 1 points us to this. And we know that th- there must be a God who has created all of this. And so natural theology, as it were, instructs us about the existence of God. But, but how do we know um, more about who this God is? That He is not just a, a God who has withdrawn Himself from creation, but that He is a living God. Well, we have evidence of that in His Word. He, through the prophets, has given us um, uh, revelation about Himself. And then we uh, come to the trajectory of those Old Testament prophets, and we see that the Word becomes flesh. The Word of God, the eternal wisdom of God, as Proverbs 8 says, takes on humanity. We studied that for uh, all of our Advent time together, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the living God um, becomes uh, the God who is one who puts on flesh. The eternal Son of God puts on humanity. And we have God with us, as we've been studying. God walking amongst us 
once again, after the fall where God was walking with Adam and Eve, that, uh, that relationship becomes separated in, in, in a certain way. And then yet God promises the seed who is to come and through the development of the revelation of God, that progressive revelation, uh, the Messiah comes, Lord Jesus. He lives his life. He walks on the earth. Uh, God with us, the, 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 the living God in person, uh, face to face, with humanity, and then he is put to death. He is put to death on the cross. Um, uh, Paul, uh, Peter says in Acts, you put God to death. Now we know, we recognize that that is the God-man, the eternal Son of God with humanity put on. But he is raised again. He is resurrected. He is alive. Amen. He is the living God, the living God, man. So this is the, the characteristic of the church is it is the assembly of the living God. Now let's just pause for a moment and think about that. And is our worship, is our motivation for living our lives for Christ fueled by that reality that we worship a living God, a God who is active, He is pure act in the sense of his immensity as the eternal God, but he acts in history nonetheless. He is a living God. He is not a dead God. Is God dead was the question that was asked, made the front uh, cover of time many years ago. Is God dead? Frederick Nietzsche asked that question. Uh, no, he is alive. He is alive. And we know that he is living because Christ lives. And that ought to fuel our worship. That ought to fuel our lives as believers in how we conduct ourselves. It is an all-of-life enterprise. It is all of who we are. And we are the gathered local assembly of the living God. And he is the God who is life and who is life-giving. And you can go back to those messages in the Gospel of John that we've gone through where Jesus says that um, the Father has granted him life. He has eternally generated the Son. And uh, so he is of the same essence as the Father, but the, the, the Father has granted him that he should be a life-giver. So this idea of the living God is not just that he is a living God, but that he is a life-giving God. And he does that ultimately through the new covenant, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which he says, dead people, <laughs> dead in their souls can be made alive. And it is Christ who does that through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. So we see a characteristic of the local assembly is that it is the assembly of the living God, but it is also a pillar and buttress of the truth. Pillar here, uh, the word in the original conveys the idea of support. It is, it is a support of the truth. Buttress, it's not a word that we use very often in our um, modern day vernacular, but if you think about those great cathedrals, the, those, those arching um, uh, you know, pieces of, of wood and, and structure that hold up the, the roof, that is a, a buttress. The word used here is, uh, is only found here in the New Testament and it conveys the idea that which provides a firm base for something. Another form of the word used outside of the New Testament means established and fixed. 
The church is the pillar and the foundation or the buttress of the truth. The idea with these two things together is not that the church holds the authority of the truth, but that it, although it does hold the word of God, but it supports and upholds the truth. In a minute, we'll see how Paul describes this with common confession. So we think of this regarding something like what Jude says about the faith once delivered, uh, once for all delivered to the saints. It is faith not as that which we exercise, but the content of what we believe. The church holds orthodoxy. It holds the truth. It upholds the truth and it proclaims the truth of God's Word. Uh, the doctrine that we distill from the Word of God. So Jude says that he had wanted to write to his readers about uh, their common salvation, but he said, I found it more important to contend for the faith, the, the body of doctrine, the content of what we believe. Returning again to Calvin's comments on this passage in 1 Timothy, he says, quote, Could it have been described in loftier language? Is anything more venerable or more holy than the everlasting truth which embraces both the glory of God and the salvation of men? Were all the praises of heathen philosophy with which it has been adorned by its followers collected into one heap? What is this in comparison of the dignity of this wisdom? which alone deserves to be called light and truth and the instruction of life and the way and the kingdom of God. Now it is preserved on earth by the ministry of the church alone. What a weight, therefore, rests on the pastors who have been entrusted with the charge of so inestimable, inestimable a treasure, end quote. Notice in both the Scriptures and in Calvin's comments, the truth of God's glory in the Gospel are not supported by the individual, but guarded, confirmed, and upheld by the church, the collective body of Christ. And that at a minimum is what we call Christian orthodoxy. This is what we are to uphold and to confirm and to proclaim, dear ones the truth of who God is and who we are as humans. And the only way to be reconciled to God who deserves glory is through the gospel message. Again, as we evaluate our own local assembly, there are matters we must remember and put into practice. Number one, the church is the household of God. And when we say the church, we understand the church universal, yes, but we must also mean this local assembly is the household of the living God, who is the life-giving God. This is a gospel reality. No one is brought from death to life, from darkness to light, without the life-giving God granting it to them by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the truth the church, this local assembly, is grounded upon and proclaims and upholds. We can have all kinds of ministries but if they, are, if they do not reflect this, then we are, failing, or we are falling short of what God has called us to do as a local assembly. And as we evaluate, we must admit that these past two years have been a test for us. We have fared well financially, certainly, but these past two years have tested our relationships, our modes of operating, our discipleship, our plans, 
and many, many other matters. And so we need reminding and encouraging in these matters in coming weeks, but we need to be reminded first and foremost as we think in light of that, that God is sovereign. I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. Because a man plans his ways, but the Lord knows the end thereof. So we have plans, we have desires, we have wishes and wants for this local assembly, things that we would like to see ministry-wise. But God, in the last two years, has said, follow me in the midst of this. And the truth Paul speaks of here and our grounding, we shall see, is based on the faith that we confess. Because no matter what comes, no matter what trials, what tests come, the firm foundation upon which we stand is the truth of God's Word that we confess. And that's our third point this morning, the confession of the local assembly. Notice the verbiage here in verse 16. Great indeed we confess. is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is a mini-confession of the church, the truth in which the church is grounded and uh, that which it upholds. He, here, is obviously Christ. This is a Christocentric confession as it should be. And what do we confess? You say, well, we confess as a local assembly the abstract of principles. That's our confession of faith, a historic, uh, grounded in the Reformation, grounded in apostolic, biblical teaching confession. Here's a mini-confession that reflects what the church has taught for 2,000 years because it is God's Word. He was manifested in the flesh. As John the Apostle writes in his epistle, and, and keep in mind, we're reading Paul here in our study this morning. We're, we're studying Paul's words, but listen to what the Apostle John says in her, his first epistle, and, and know that there is one divine author. Okay, Listen to what John writes in his first epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He was manifested in the flesh. It's the common confession of the church. Christ, the eternal Son of God, put on humanity. This is the consistent teaching with all orthodox confessions of Christ from the time of the Bible through the early church up to today. He was manifest in the flesh. This is the truth upon which we stand. This is the the pillar. This is the buttress. We uphold this and proclaim it. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Uh, The word here... Vindicated is the same for justification. But Christ did not need, to, need the justification that we needed, for He is righteous, 
And that actually helps us understand what Paul is saying, that Jesus is vindicated at the, as the righteous one by the Spirit. How so? Well, Calvin asks us to ponder what the Apostle Paul states in Romans 1, 3, and 4. So again, um, looking at a different letter to a different congregation, Paul writes this, I, uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In essence, Paul is drawing our minds to the death and resurrection of Christ. This is how Christ was vindicated. He who is righteous was put to death, being accused of that which he did not and could not do. And he was vindicated as righteous when he rose from the grave. If you believe in your heart um, that uh, God raised him from the dead, Paul writes in Romans 10. So, this is how Christ was vindicated. This as well accords with Orthodox Christianity from the Scriptures through the early church to today. Now, what about the seen by angels part? We don't often, in our confessions and creeds, talk about seen by angels. By the way, the word creed simply means we believe. It means believe, right? Seen by angels. Well, think of Peter's description, yet... Another New Testament author we've seen from Paul, from the Apostle John, now from Peter. <clears throat> Think of, of Peter's description of the unfolding of God's revelation in the Old Testament. Listen to the way in which uh, this mini-confession in 1 Timothy is echoed by Peter, and then listen to the idea of the unfolding of God's revelation, 1 Peter 1, 3-12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, listen here, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in these things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. That was a long passage to get to those last six words. But all of these things, all of these matters that Peter expounds upon here are things into which angels long to look. They wanted to understand how is it that 
the eternal Son of God, who, this is from the angel's perspective, the eternal Son of God who created me and created those people that have done such terrible and wicked things. How is it that the eternal Son of God is going to put on flesh and dwell among this people that hates him and die for them and be raised again? The angels did see. <laughs> they saw it all unfold in the Old Testament prophecies, and they saw it unfold in the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Christ. They longed to look into these things, and they did see it. Seen by angels in eternity, seen by angels in his earthly ministry, seen by angels now as he sits at the right hand of the throne. Proclaimed among the nations is the next part of the confession. Thinking about 1 John uh, again, now verse 3, that which we have seen, this is the Apostle John speaking, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? Why, John? So that you too may have fellowship with us. Believed on in the world. While he was here, there were those who believed in him. It is not an afterthought, believed on in the world in the sense of later on they believed in him. No, he was believed on while he was here. And now he is believed on throughout the world. Taken up to glory. The ascension is a key piece of doctrine because it brings to mind Christ's glorification and his return. These are matters that we confess together. The church, the local assembly, has to have a common confession. We need to have an orthodox confession. That is the truth that we um, uphold, the truth that we proclaim, the truth upon which we stand. It is this reality, the, the things that we confess, the things that we say we believe. The reason we can forge forward in view of, the, of difficult times and times that are less so is that this is our grounding, this is our faith, and we must be vigilant in um, the proclamation of it and the upholding of it. In spite of what is going on around us and because of how things may continue to go in the culture, etc., we must contend for the faith, but we must do so with gentleness and reverence. Why? Well, look at what comes just next in what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What is he saying? He's saying there are, the, there are going to be those who come along and deceive through false teaching. And so we must know the truth. We must stand upon the truth. We must uphold the truth. We must proclaim the truth. And we must come alongside of one another in equipping and through discipleship and continually remind each, others of, each other of these things that we confess. Keep reading in 1 Timothy 4. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words 
of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. What is Paul telling Timothy? He's saying you must teach the truth and you must live by the truth. Therefore, we see the truth as foundational, the truth of God's word, the doctrine, that which we confess. And what does that produce in us? But faithful living, the conduct of the church. Paul says, I want to write to you so that if I'm delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The characteristic of the church. It is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And that truth is seen in the confession of the church. Let us be considered, let us be encouraged, dear church, this morning as we consider these truths. There's much work for us to do as we labor for our triune God in whose finished work we rest, if we are indeed united to him through faith in Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit. Let us love each other well as we begin this new year, reaching out, caring, discipling, praying, and encouraging each other in this common faith that we confess and proclaiming that gospel to those with whom God gives us opportunity. And let's pray for those opportunities for this year. Perhaps you're one in our midst who does not know Christ. You've heard the gospel this morning. Christ, the eternal Son of God, put on humanity, lived the life that you could not live. He lived perfectly. He died in place uh, of you, of one who should have died in the way that he died, receiving the justice of God. And he rose again on the third day and uh, is ascended on high. And all who place their faith and trust in Christ will be reconciled to God, will be saved. If you have questions about that, please come and see me after a time in the Lord's table and our final song. But for now, let's pray and then partake of the Lord's Supper. Lord, we praise you for truth. We praise you, Lord, that you have entrusted this truth to the church, universal, and then, Lord, the local assembly to um, be a manifestation of that in communities. We pray, Lord, that our local assembly would be known by these things. And, Lord, that you would humble us, that you would Help us to remember that you are the one worthy of praise and honor and glory. And now, Lord, as we participate in uh, your supper, we pray that you would be present with us and that we would be reminded that we would also, Lord, be rejoicing and that we would be prompted and encouraged and growing in our faith because of the emblems that you've given us in the supper. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.